Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this week I have another very special guest on the show. My guest this week is a former GP turned prison doctor who has treated inmates in some of the UK's most infamous prisons. After first working in young offenders institutions, she spent time at the notorious HMP Wormwood Scrubs before finally arriving at HMP Bronzefield, the largest women-only prison in Europe. Her third and final book, The Prison Doctor, The Final Sentence, is out today. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Amanda Brown. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. You're more than welcome. Now, how I found you was actually on Amazon. I've got a little sneaky tip here for any aspiring podcasters. I went on there and I was looking for true crime books because I like to speak to authors every now and again. And I was looking at upcoming books and I saw yours flag. Well, it just stood out really. And it was The Prison Doctor, which is sort of the prefix title, I suppose. And I thought, God, I never realized that prisons have doctors, which sounds incredibly naive to me. Is that something that people don't actually appreciate, that these prisoners have GPs the same as people on the street do? Well, absolutely. And in fact, when I started working in a prison, I, I was offered a job in a prison. I, I sounds daft now, but I truly also didn't even think that doctors went into prison. So, yeah, I don't think you're alone in that, Stuart. I think that's pretty, pretty normal, really, which um, I think is why some people have found the books quite interesting in that way. What sort of feedback have you got from the books? Is it a case of it's just a completely foreign world to the general reader? I think a lot of people have just found it quite interesting to have an insight into a world that most people wouldn't probably know much about. And certainly that it's opened a lot of interest in in prisons in a funny sort of way. And maybe particularly with the, the second book, which was about the women in prison, highlighting the fact that so many, so many women in prison are victims themselves of domestic violence and sexual abuse, etc. So I think it sheds us maybe a, a hopefully a more compassionate light on prisons. Yeah. What was your journey like before the prison doctor side? You were a general GP. You had your own practice. Is that right? Yes, had had my own practice uh, for 20 years, built up my own little general practice, which back in the old days, back in the 80s, was was just a wonderful, wonderful job. And I loved what I did, but I hated when the government kept interfering with how doctors got paid and what they had to do to prove themselves in a way. And so in 2004, when the a new GP contract was coming out, which involved a lot more target hitting and there was financial reward for certain things and I just couldn't work that way and so that's how I ended up in prison. (laughs) And is being a GP something that from a young age you always wanted to help people? Did you often play doctors and nurses as a child? Yeah well my yes absolutely nothing else ever interested me I guess because my dear old dad was a GP and I used to go out with him when I was very young sitting in his little Morris Minor car going on visits and hearing about what, well, I didn't go in with him, but I wanted to hear about what patients he'd seen and what was wrong with them. And I just grew up longing and hoping I would be able to do the same job. How does one come about earning their own practice? So when you go through medical school, that's quite a lengthy process, isn't it? That's quite a few years of study. Yes. So so 
five years, pretty much five years, get through medicine. I, I did an extra year along the way to do a BSc in physiology as well. So that made it six years. And then you have to do your house jobs. They used to be called house jobs back then, junior house jobs. And then after a year of junior jobs, it took another, then have to do GP training for another three years. So it's a, it's a long old process. And again, back then, general practice was a very popular job. So it was quite hard to get a decent job. But luckily, I managed to find a practice that needed, well, there were six male doctors and they thought they ought to have a female. So I was introduced as the token female doctor. And then um, <laughs> it was, it was, it was fine. It didn't bother me, but that's how it was back then. And yeah. then they had a branch surgery, which the dear old doctor that was running that became ill. And the doctors that I was working with sent me up there to sort of basically close it down because they didn't want the hassle of this branch surgery. But um, I went up there and it, there were quite a, quite an elderly population in this village and people wanted a doctor up there. So I cut a very long story short. I set up my own practice. Well, the list just grew and grew up there and I um, just carried on working up there for 20 odd years, built up my own practice. And my dear old gorgeous husband who was a builder built me a little surgery so it was a it was a great life can you briefly tell my audience the story of, of how you met your husband because I thought that was quite cool <laughs> yeah well I'd got a three-year job over at Heatherwood Hospital doing the six months in all different areas of medicine to become a GP and so I managed to f managed to scrape up enough money to buy a, a very small little flat that my husband had part of his job had actually built um, and he was in charge of after sales service so every time I flushed the loo water came out the overflow in the bath and I thought well that can't be right so I got the I got the builders round and this knock on the door and he was late and I was angry and I thought bloody hell why is everyone excuse my language sorry why is everyone always anyway David knocked on the door and I just looked at him and, and that was the man I spent the next 40 years of my life with and utterly fell in love with him. Oh, such a cute story. <laughs> you don't have to apologise for language here on British Murders. Oh, I don't think, I think I've said much worse than uh, bloody hell. Well, my <laughs> language is appalling now. 17 years in prison and I'm, I, you know, I'm ashamed of how bad I am. Do you find yourself having to adjust your language when you go into normal society, for better lack of a word? <laughs> I, I try to, but I've almost given up now. <laughs> it's hopeless. I think nowadays most people probably speak that way anyway. I think the thing that people might not understand is a lot of the... I imagine there's a lot of slang in prison, a lot of terminology that is sort of in-house. Am I right in thinking that? <laughs> yeah, a fair, a fair bit, yes. But it's um, it's it's just, yeah, the swear words do come out very frequently, so which is fine, you know, it's what it is. Are there any words that they create to try and trick the people on duty, for example? Is there any terminology that they use to try and confuse people to not know what they're talking about? Like, do they create any false words or anything like that? Gosh, I'm sure they do, but I can't think, I mean, apart from obviously when people refer to a, a nonce and sort of, but I nothing that I can easily quickly think of. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure they have caught me out a few times in the past, but um, but nothing, uh, no, nothing I can instantly think of, unfortunately. That means it's working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to touch back on, you mentioned you were sort of, as you put it, the token female in that first practice. I was going to ask you what sort of barriers you had to overcome in 
a primarily male dominated field, I suppose. Was there, was there anything from your patients? Did anyone refuse to see you and rather see a male doctor, for example? No, thank God. But I did feel, I, I think deep down, I just always felt slightly inadequate that, you know, women were regarded as rather not as good as the men. But fortunately, I think it took a, a while for some of the older patients to adjust to having a female. And really, really sad. But apparently they once years ago had had a female in that practice who was murdered of all things. Wow. So some of these old yeah, some of these dear old souls that met me said, "Ooh, the last lady doctor was murdered." Oh um, God! Yeah, and that sort of hung around me a while. Awful story, but no. Generally, it took it took a while for people to accept me. I think, but um, I was all right in the end. Thank God. Yeah. What was your sort of client base age range? Was it mainly older people? Yes, particularly older people when I started, because the dear, lovely doctor I took over from retired at the age of 80, of all things. So wow. and he he clung on to his sort of old faithfuls, but he only had a list of about 12 patients almost. You know, he had hardly any list left. Yeah. And most of those were private patients because he was a wealthy old boy that used to drive around in a Rolls Royce visiting them all and having a gin and tonic with them. I mean, this is, you know, this is weird to think how life used to be back then. So I inherited a rather sort of elderly, wealthy bunch of folk. Some of them scattered off to the other doctors before I got there, which is fine. But then I gently built up my own list. And uh, that's why, you know, my future really was up at this branch surgery, because that's where people wanted to have a doctor. So my list just grew and grew and grew, which was great. And is that something you can transfer from if you're just part of a practice and then you move on to actually running your own practice. Is it like, you know, like a driving instructor, if he works for BSM and then he goes independent and he takes his clients with him, would it be similar to that with a GP? Well, yes. In this situation, when I joined these doctors, I was on a salary and they said, you can earn, you can earn the money we sort of earn, but you know, if you build your list up, which was pretty hard work actually. Um, so my only way of actually earning a salary that would reflect the work I was doing was to build my own list up. So when I was set up in this branch surgery, I had to effectively just break away from them to be independent. Yes, it was all fine. It was all amicable, but that was the only way I could actually have my own practice. And then you said that you were actually offered the job of working in a prison. And we sort of briefly chatted before the recording that you yourself weren't even aware that that was kind of a thing, which I think most people aren't. So how did that come about then? Was that something, was it getting to a stage after running the practice for 20 years, you fancied a change? Was it just perfect timing? No, the new GP contract was due to start on the 1st of April 2004. And three weeks before that, we had a practice meeting and my two young male, lovely doctors, but we sat down on our Monday meeting and one of them said that if I didn't pull my weight financially, they'd resent me. And as he said that, it was, I mean, it was almost like a physical pain going through me. And I thought, I cannot, I can't do this job to pull my weight financially. That's not what I'm about. And literally, I can't, even now I find it strange because I'm, I'm normally quite cautious. But as he said that, I just said, well, I'm leaving then. And that was that. I stood up, walked out the meeting and couldn't believe what I'd just done because I thought I cannot work, I cannot do a job which is, is to prove how much money I can earn. So that was the end of me. And I was so upset with what was coming for general practice. I 
ended up on the front page of one of the GP magazines called Pulse. And on the front page, there's this horrible picture of me. And they quoted me as saying that nobody gives a toss or something. Mm. And anyway, (laughs) on the strength of that article, a doctor that was trying to recruit doctors to work in prisons tracked me down and phoned me up and asked me if I fancied working in a prison. So that was how it started. Is that quite a common thing for some doctors to work for the status as opposed to working to help people? Do people like being called doctors? (laughs) I don't know. I really don't know because I feel incredibly privileged to have had the career I've had and I've loved it. So I guess there's always going to be some people out there that like that, but not me. And where was the first place you worked within the prison system? Uh, The first prison I went to was HMP Huntercombe, which in those days was for 15 to 18-year-old boys, which at the time my two sons were within that age bracket as well. So I I hoped I'd be able to relate to them reasonably well. I worked there from 2004 until eventually Huntercombe shut as a young offender prison in 2010 to be recategorised. And so that job was coming to an end and I wasn't sure what what the prison was, you know, how long it would be shut for. And I thought I'd enjoy trying to work in Worm and Scrubs. So that's when I headed off to uh, set off in Worm and Scrubs just before that. I carried on working in Cream till it finished, but I, in 2009, started working in Wormwood Scrubs, which was incredibly exciting and, and a fabulous place to be. And I lasted seven years there, which was great. It said in my research that Wormwood Scrubs is quite a notorious prison. Why is that? Oh, I just think it's it's very old. It's a Victorian prison. It's had some very, I can't quote exactly the notorious prisons it's had, but it's certainly had some pretty high-profile prisoners. And it's, a, it's an imposing, dramatic building, and it's very big. I mean, I think there's thirteen to 1,400 prisoners. And you walk in the place and it just, you know, you can almost feel history creeping into your bones somehow. It's definitely got a strange feel to it, yeah. What category is it? Is it A? It's a category B, but sometimes category B prisons get cranked up to category A, depending on if they happen to have a particularly difficult prisoner or very, uh, yeah. So so, so occasionally it it got up to an A, but most of the time it was category B. So a, a category B prison, if that takes on a high risk category A prisoner, just one, as long as they're in that prison, that category would be bumped up to an A as long as they remain in there. Is that how it works? Well, I'm definitely not an expert, but I, when I was there, you know, sometimes it's, oh, you know, it's, we're, we're cat A because we've got so-and-so in here. Um, so right. I, I just know at times I was told it was, a, it was sort of categorised as a cat A prison. Might need to check up on that, you know, but it was um, according to, so, yes, if they, had a, if they had a certain type of prisoner. No, we'll we'll say that that's fact then. But we'll just say it's an interesting idea. Yeah. It does make it does make sense though, because oh. I think, and again, this is the naivety possibly of the general public, certainly of me, is that prison is this almost like a fantastical world that doesn't exist in everyday life. So what all we see is is shows like you know Line of Duty, all these prison shows on the BBC and ITV. So to hear about stories from inside, I think that's why it's so interesting. It's like serial killers because it's such a foreign concept mm. that you know Touchwood no one really wants to do. It's interesting to learn about it and that that's why I really enjoyed your book, not just from 
the fact you were a prison doctor, which I hadn't even heard of before I, I saw your book there, but just learning about prisons is fascinating, I think. But what was the transition like from working with 15 to 18 year olds to actual adults then? Because it, you must have felt almost like a mother figure to the younger men. Oh, yes. No, the young, the, on the whole, the younger guys were, I definitely felt like a mother figure to them. And the relationship I built up with a lot of them was delightful, actually. One young lad in there used to write me poetry because he, he was very damaged. He'd been brought up in care. He literally was coming up for 18 and about to transfer to another prison. And he had no family, absolutely nobody out there sort of caring about him. And, uh, and I found that hugely, I mean, just so sad. And yeah, he and I, you know, got on really well. And he, he was, he wrote me these lovely poems. It was very sweet. But going, working on Worm and Scrubs, moving on to adults was a whole new ball game, and very dramatic and exciting, actually. Exciting in a terrifying kind of way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very, very big prison. And initially, of course, to start off in a prison, I wouldn't have my own keys, so I had to be escorted. But after a while. We get key training and then I can walk around the prison with my own keys and this, that and the other. But um, initially I thought, I am never going to find my way around this place. It was, you know, I, but anyway, I did. As soon as I got my own keys, I, I managed to find my way around. But it was initially quite daunting. And for a prison with a population of, I think it's a twelve to 1,400 there, how many doctors are actually within that facility then? Because... If there's only a handful of you, that's quite a lot of prisons to look after. Yeah, so a lot of doctors come and go. You know, I would do three shifts a week or three days a week, rather. Other doctors, you know, so one way or another, there were quite a few doctors, but with different roles. So, for example, one doctor might be doing a GP surgery on one of the wings because there was five wings: A, B, C, D, and E wing, and each wing had a GP surgery twice a week. I think it was back then. And there was also duty doctor role, which is what I mainly did. And the duty doctor role started at 9am and finished at 10pm. So it was a long old shift. But the duty doctor would go all around the prison going to emergencies, go around the SEG, go to the first night centre. So, so lots of doctors, but doing different, having different roles. Okay. And were the books always full? Like, did you ever have, if it, let's say the surgery is only there for a couple of days a week, was that every appointment filled every week? Oh yes, yeah. There was. Uh, it was. It was never empty, and quite a lot of prescriptions to rewrite. Yeah, no. Yeah, it was. It was always busy. Do you find a lot of people just want to have a conversation with someone who isn't another inmate? <laughs> um, yes, uh, I suppose, and also, of course, somebody that's there basically to help them. It's not. Yeah, I mean, the officers are there to help them as well, of course, but. Um, I have, you know, the doctors have it coming from a slightly different angle. And yeah, it was, uh, I mean, hopefully the prisons realise I'm there to help them, not judge them or punish them or, or anything else. So it was, it was actually a nice relationship to have with them. Was there any moral issues with regards to now you're looking after people who have been in prison for a specific crime? So that may be something like fraud, it could be robbery, it could be murdering someone, for example. Is it hard to put that in the back of your mind when you're treating these people? Occasionally it is, but on the whole, I'm absolutely amazed how I can put it to the back of my head, which I, I, it, surprises, it surprises me, really, but I do and I can. But there, there are times when, you know, it's, it's there and it's hard. I imagine the, 
Did you take a Hippocratic oath? Is that a thing over here, or is that an American thing? The Hippocratic. <laughs> it, well, it's a, it's something we, yes, we do, and yeah, I can't quote it now. So that was a very <laughs> very long time ago, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> so. Th- if we can move on from Wormwood Scrubs then, the book I've read, your most recent one, that's in Huntercoon when it was recategorized. So it was recategorized to a foreign national prison, which again, I hadn't heard of. Just want to explain briefly what that actually is. Basically, it's for somebody that's living in the UK that's committed a crime and it turns out that perhaps they haven't got the right paperwork to live in the UK. And so um, unlike a immigration removal centre it's a prison for somebody that's committed a crime with the possible the long-term result will be that the people will be deported back to the countries they were born in or came from originally not always because sometimes they appeal going back to their country but effectively it's to deport people back to the countries they came from yeah because i know there was one gentleman in in that book I i forget his name and he he was from syria yes he had issues with, he was a bit closeted with his sexuality and that was frowned upon in Syria, but something to do with the, the conflict that happened over there, the timing of that was perfect mm. and, the, and they actually successfully appealed. So would someone like that, if it was appealed, would they be released back in society if once they've served their sentence just within the UK as anyone else would? Sure, yes. And I say quite quite a lot of people would appeal their sentence, and sometimes it was it was very very tough because you know a lot of people I met had been living in the UK for twenty thirty years. They got families, grandchildren, all the rest of it. You know, so the thought of being deported back to Jamaica or wherever maybe was was incredibly hard. But sometimes that happened, and I you know I don't really I'm not very clever with all this prison stuff as to the legalities of all this, but I just met people that were possibly potentially being sent back to countries they didn't even know. So it was yeah. it was very, very, it was emotionally a very hard job, funnily enough, working there. It's, it's surprising because, in theory, these people surely will have British citizenships. Yeah, I, yes. I mean, and again, I, I say it because I'm not an expert on exactly how it all works. All I know is I was seeing human beings that were you know, possibly facing being, some of them were quite happy to go back, you know, that was, that was, that was fine, but not, not everyone. And that was, that was really hard. And one man I remember, he was a lovely guy and he was being, I forget which country he was going to be deported back to, but he knew that when he got back there, there were people out there to get him and were going to, you know, he was literally fearing for his life that when he was sent back, that they would, you know, going to murder him. It was horrible. And he was so trying to take away the stress for that. Well, I couldn't. I mean, it was just so, so hard to try and do anything useful for him in a way because the stress was just overwhelming. And that that's why I found, I think of all the 17 years I've worked in prisons, I found working there, in a way, emotionally, perhaps the hardest. Yeah, it's certainly an emotional book, as I sort of mentioned pre-recording, but one little section I did enjoy, probably for the wrong reasons, but I thought it was a little bit of comic relief. A little bit hmm. is when you when you have to ring up and uh, and go through the translation service. Oh God! That no. seemed like it'd be an absolute nightmare. <laughs> oh, it was desperate. I hated it. it. Took forever. Oh, and it you know, and of course, just to try and understand somebody's symptoms via a translator was um, yeah, well, it was really really 
frustrating at times but I say I did get quite good at miming and, and and ended up sometimes having quite a good laugh with the prisoners because you know miming having a having diarrhea and vomiting and maybe self you know so yeah <laughs> but it was a it was it was very time consuming as well yeah I, I must admit I did have a little bit of a chuckle sort of picturing <laughs> you doing all these symptoms while, while you're on hold to the translation service the story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Do you find that working in somewhere such as Huntercoon when it changed categories and you've got all these different people from different cultures and different backgrounds, does that affect the environment within the prison? So in a normal prison, let's say people would have gangs, whether that's based on ethnicity, but for the most part, everyone's the same nationality. Does it create a big divide with everyone coming from different backgrounds? Well, if it did, I wouldn't really be so much aware of that, Stuart, because I just sort of saw them in the clinic, in the surgery and all the rest of it. But I also, there was one one guy when he arrived at Huntercombe from Wormwood Scrubs and he he was a bit isolated and didn't really know anybody. But I introduced him from to people that were from, I think he was from, uh, Nigeria and I knew some nice Nigerian prisoners and I introduced them to each other so that he would be, you know be be taken into their their sort of friendship gang really which was which was good so I but I didn't really see it because I didn't go around the prison very much I just really just stuck to the GP clinic bits right do you still have the hedgehog house yes oh, <laughs> yes that's oh, so sweet that was well, a good little story there's an area in the prison where the prisoners can craft things and sell yes. them to obviously improve the skills. Did you buy anything else apart from that? Oh, I bought I bought a lot of stuff actually. I bought a raccoon that they they it was made up to look like a prisoner, which uh, um, was lovely, and some soft toys and some cards and bits and pieces. But my friend, which is wonderful now, my friend who has a a, a pretty big company, is actually trying to work with the prison to help the prisoners with their craft shop. So that's actually very exciting. I went back there recently with her um, to see the crafts and they do some wonderful, beautiful stuff. Did anything more come of, I think it was called Hunter Coombe Stories. The warden there wanted to sort of have prisoners who'd left and made amendments to the life. I know there was one that came, I think it was a Polish gentleman who came back mm. and, and, and he was like a personal trainer or something. How's that caught on now? Do you, have you got an update with regards to that? I haven't got an update, but you know, when I last spoke to the the governor, he said it was you know it was it was really good, it was going well. But I'm I'm not you know I don't I don't go to the prison very often anymore. But I'm still in touch with them, which is nice. It's a really good idea, I think. Just hearing the success stories from someone who's actually been in their position, in theory. I mean, actually, I think I must say that they're very caring, you know, the, the governor and the, the officers, you know, they really do actually care. I think, I don't know what the general public think of prison officers, but I, they are there to do their job and, and they really do care about these people. So it's uh, it's good. So you moved to Bronzefield and you're still based there now, is that right? That's right. Yes, been in Bronzefield for six years, which is amazing. And because everybody said to me when I was working women's scrubs, a lot of the officers, oh, don't work with women. They'll eat you alive, and you'll be, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you know, you'll be, they'll be bitchy to you, and they'll be all this old nonsense. So I thought, well, so for twelve years, I didn't. I turned down offers to work in Holloway and this. Anyway, 
December 2015, I was asked to do a shift at Bronzefield and I thought, I'm bloody well give it a go and see what it's like, thinking I'd only last a couple of shifts. But six years later and I'm still there. And I absolutely love it. Is there a big difference then? Because I was going to ask you if you had any challenges with either male or female and what the big difference is between the two with regards to prison population? Well, the prison, Bromsfield, where I'm working now, is allegedly the, the largest female prison in Europe, and yet there's only, I think, 500 or so prisoners. So you can see the contrast with 1,200, 1,300 in Wormwood Scrubs versus Bromsfield. So we're obviously much smaller, and I think women only make up 5% of the prison population. There's probably more self-harm with the women, but I think the most overwhelming thing to me is how deeply, deeply damaged so many of them are. And when I first started working there, the governor, well, at least they're called um, the director, it's, uh, it's run by Sodexo, called, so it's not called the governor, it's called the director, told me that 86% of the women in that prison are victims themselves of some sort of abuse or violence. And and I see that. And, and I also see the desperate situation that so, so many of them are released to homelessness. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. I see women come in and out of prison because they're released to homelessness. And then, unfortunately, that means they usually get back into drugs because that's the only way they can almost survive. And so so prison and crime and homelessness are just round and round and round. But it's um, but I love working there and I, I'm truly fond of very many of those women. What's the percentage comparison with the men if it's 86% have had sort of mm. troubled backgrounds. What's the equivalent for Mandy? You know? I really don't know, actually. I would imagine it's quite high, but I, I was never sort of told that. I was just thrown into women's scrubs and, you know, get on with it somehow. But yeah. the, the, the female prison, yeah, slightly different sort of feel to it, really. Do you have any difficult patients, not even personality-wise, but just challenging diagnoses that you've come across? Oh, yes, there's always challenging diagnosis in, in, in medicine anyway. I suppose the most horrific, dramatic thing that happened in Wormwood Scrubs is a is a young man who literally slit his throat and um, the alarm bell went off and when luckily another doctor was working on the wing at the time, so he'd got there before me. But so that was the probably the most dramatic self harm I've ever ever seen and it was awful and I to this day I don't know how this poor man survived but he did so that was pretty dramatic and a very unusual case I saw in Wormer's Crubs was of TB meningitis which was a very I'd never seen that in 40 years of medicine so there can be yeah there can be obviously some very interesting medicine in prison. Do you have any stories from the waiting room any any riots broken out in the waiting room because you've been behind or people have been sat, sat next to each other that don't like each other <laughs> yes there's sometimes been some fights breaking out in the waiting room fortunately i don't think it's because i'm running late because i'm always running late i'm so <laughs> slow um but uh, yeah sometimes you can hear some kicking off outside and you know think, oh bloody hell here we go again but um that's prison you know what's it like when you move so you've been in a few different institutions now do you ever look back and think, oh, I wonder what happened to so-and-so? Or is, is there any issues of, like, you wish you had a bit more closure? Oh, yes, no, absolutely. That's probably the worst thing about working in a prison is you don't get the closure. And there was a young man I met in Wormwood Scrubs who really, really affected me. Basically, he just looked very angry and he'd grown up in care and he lost touch with his mother and... 
And we got chatting. It was in the first night centre at Wormers Clubs quite late and he wasn't engaging very well, looked very surly, looked angry with me. And anyway, and I just happened to ask about his background and he said that his mother was trying to get in touch with him, but he wasn't going to respond. And I got really upset about this because I just imagined as a mother myself, if I was trying to find, God forbid, you know, if I'd lost touch with my boys, I was trying to find them, it would be heartbreaking. But anyway, he could see that I was, I mean, I think I was on the verge of tears probably, and he could see how upset I was. And I asked why he wouldn't get back in touch with her. And he said, because I can't bear the thought of being rejected again. And I got really upset. He ended up hugging me (laughs) um, to comfort me of all things, which was a complete turnaround from this whole weird situation. And quite a long time later, I was walking around sea wing and scrubs and he called down to me and you know he shot down all these stairs and said oh doc he said i've got in touch with my mother and we're a family again and that was it was just beautiful so you know there are people and i would love love to know how he is now and i'd love to know how the boy is that wrote me the poetry is because that's a long time ago now but of course i think about them but i'll never know yeah it's frustrating but i suppose you've just got to think that you have had a positive impact on these people and just think everything's gone in the right direction hope so yeah what's it like you mentioned in the book there that people who are in segregation in in some of the places it there was never anyone in there or it was rare and some they were always full is it the same that you would go to rather than them come into the actual waiting room or the, the practice you would actually go and visit them is it the same with like vip wings for people that have committed crimes that are so bad that they're not allowed in general pop yes well certainly in the seg yes obviously always visited them there the only time i worked in a prison where they had a vip wing was in um oh it will come to me when i'm not thinking but they had a vip wing there and the doctor went there to do the clinic on that wing but in wormwood scrubs there were some vulnerable prisoners because it was a remand prison so sometimes there'd be a vulnerable prisoner waiting to be sent on to the, the appropriate prison and of course if they were found out in Wormer Scrubs to have committed a crime that the other prisons didn't approve of then there could be real trouble. Is Again with people who are like that I mean you've just got to put it to the back of your mind when you're treating them I, I think I would find that so hard personally. Sure really hard but again if I dare mention the first book I mentioned that there because one elderly man was he was that excuse my language but they literally beat the shit out of him Um, when they found out what his crime was. And I went to see him in his cell and he got a fractured hip. He was barely conscious and they'd really, really gone for him um, because they found out the crime. And another guy, they found out that he, whatever his crime was, that they poured boiling sugar water over him um, in the showers, which is the very, very awful burns you get from that. And I had to go and see him and he was sort of red and raw. It was awful. But yeah, it's hard to, you know, it's, it's, I, but fortunately, sort of humanity kicks in when I'm seeing somebody that's, you know, in a real bad way. And that's mm. what, that's what I'm dealing with. I don't, the crime fortunately is, goes to the back of my head. Can you walk me through an average day at Bronzefield then? So you wake up in the morning, you have your first of 12 coffees, <laughs> you get there. What's the process like from, obviously, you don't have to go through every appointment, but just sort of roughly start to finish. What can you expect on an average day? Ah, well, Wednesday when I work in Bronzefield, I'm literally just dealing with the women that are detoxing from um, heroin and 
alcohol, etc. So, and in fact, at the moment, because of COVID, still because of COVID, all of those conversations are on the phone because in Bronzefield, the women all have phones in their cells. But when I work on a Saturday or Sunday doing general practice, I'll sit there and see anything from earache to self-harm to just eczema, diabetes, sore throat, you know, it's everything. A lot of the poor women have, sometimes they have quite nasty uh, leg ulcers from their drug use, so might see some pretty, pretty horrific leg ulceration. The evening shift at Bronzefield, which I sometimes do, is 5 to 9pm, and that's seeing new people arriving in prison. So yeah. it just varies. You know, sometimes it's general practice sitting in the clinic. Sometimes it's seeing new people arriving. And I say on a Wednesday when I work there, it's it's all to do with drug use. Do you give them like a health check then with new arrivals? Well, every new arrival is seen by the nurses and they're screened quite extensively, you know, taking history and finding out what medication they're on, what their medical issues might be. And then the doctor would see any patient that's on any medication that needs prescribing and particularly see the people that are withdrawing from drugs and alcohol. Does it ever shock you the amount of contraband that gets into prison or do you just think it's just one of those things? It happens. It used to shock me. I mean, I literally couldn't believe it. But now I just realise it's what happens. What's the strangest thing you've known of that's come through a prison, contraband-wise? Well... Of course, mainly it's drugs and phones. And I remember a a wonderful governor in Wormwood Scrubs described some woman that was visiting somebody in Wormwood Scrubs and said, oh, no, it's perhaps I've meant to not say this, but she said, you know, the old internal passage was bigger than a clown's pocket. She said, I couldn't believe how much stuff she got up there. (laughs) But, I mean, it's mainly mainly drugs. And uh, I haven't seen them coming in with weapons up there (laughs) yeah kinder eggs full of drugs are quite common do you get many people that come in on behalf of someone so if they're concerned about someone who won't come and see you and someone just wants to highlight to you an issue with someone not usually no because the the patient themselves have to make the appointments Okay. And in Bronzefield, the nurses, the prisoners will apply for if they've got issues and then the nurses often triage them and sort them out or they'll put them on the list then to see the doctor. And still some of the consultations are on the phone, which is not great. I don't like the phone consultations. I much, much prefer to see somebody face to face. But fortunately, with COVID sort of easing up a bit, we're getting more and more face to face now. So how did the first book come about then? Were you approached by... A publisher, or did you just think, I need to write about this? No, no, I'm actually really quite shy, and so the thought of writing a book was the last thing on earth I ever thought of. But my, a friend of my son's um, was visiting, they were visiting one Friday night. I got back from a, a shift at Bronzefield at 10 o'clock at night, completely knackered, and this girl who I'd never met before, who happened to be a ghostwriter, said, oh, what do you do? And I told her, and I was a bit, I was just tired, and I said, you know, it can be draining. I said, but this is what makes it worthwhile. And that particular day, I'd been given the most lovely, lovely letter. A prisoner wrote me a lovely letter thanking me, and it was it was a very powerful letter, actually. And and I showed this writer this letter, and I said, "This is this is what makes it worthwhile." And 
I just think she read that letter and said, wow, she said, why don't you write a book? And I thought, come on, don't be dark. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how it started. Uh, so she introduced me to her her agent, and the agent put me in front of four different editors, which was all a bit cringe-making. Um, and I had to sit there and sort of talk about myself, which is not something I'm particularly, I don't enjoy. But anyway, off it went. And I can't believe, to this day, I can't quite believe that the books happened, but they did. Yeah, I think it's an amazing subject that's just so foreign to yeah. everyone. And if you can get a hold on kind of an area or a niche that's so interesting yet not talked about, yeah, you've got the whole market, really. I think yeah. it's really... I'm, def- I'm going to have to read your first two because the third one was, was really good. It's very sweet, Stuart, because funnily enough, the first book is the one that really sort of, I think, really shone a light on everything and and uh, yeah and you might but the second the second book is is all about the women so that might be a bit bit heavy duty but um <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'll still give it a go i'm a big boy well, well done okay. i'll give it then again i was emotionally affected with the new one more than i anticipated so that was uh, just so sad some of the stories in there but then it's a contradiction really you've got to think you know has this person done something what have they done but then you've got to think from a from a moral standpoint or a fellow human standpoint they are still normal people they might have had a bad background like you said yeah but but you know the thing the thing i have to say is that the main chappie in the third book the last book Mm -hmm. in a country where they had so so little money and he he knew he was dying and he did this one-off thing i know to make sure his family would have enough money that when he died they would be okay and honestly as a parent i can't help but think would i have done the same thing and i'm not proud of saying that but if i was given the choice of even ending up in prison so that my family would have money enough money to survive i struggle with that one because i think as a parent i might have done it too and i Perhaps I shouldn't say that, but these are human stories. I think until you're in that situation, you can't really give an opinion on it. It's like fight or flight. You don't know until you're in the situation, I suppose. But I think caring after family, most people in the same situation probably would do the same thing. So you can't really look down on someone for that. You mentioned that sometimes, you know, people wrote your poetry and you get sometimes nice letters from people. What's the best compliment you've ever received from an inmate? (laughs) when I met a recurrent lovely prisoner in Wormwood Scrubs who was homeless I knew him quite well and when he came back into prison it was quite late and the computer was playing up and I said oh for fuck's sake and I said oh sorry I shouldn't swear and he said don't worry he said it's like meeting an angel in a shithole and (laughs) somehow I think that's probably the best thing anyone's ever said to me (laughs) (laughs) So to think that I'm an angel in a shithole was, I could put that on my gravestone. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's cool. If you had £100 million to spend on health technology or healthcare, something innovative in the health sector, no legal issues, it'd get straight green lighted, what would you use that money for? Is there something that's missing that's urgently required? And we can have any limits, it doesn't have to be feasible. It can be something as you wish that could happen. Well, I I would love to have some incredibly posh scanner that would stop drugs getting into prisons. That would be my wish list, really, because I see the damage they do in prison. Is that not something that they must get scanned, though, on the way in, surely? An x-ray is obviously an extreme thing to do, but is there not anything close to that at the moment? 
Well, again, you can't do internal searches on people. And, of course, people bring the drugs in in the front passage, back passage, and any other passage they can find. So you can't internally search people. It's The trouble is that the drugs can be so incredibly dangerous. You know, and we're trying to look after people and keep them safe from prison and that they get a vicious batch of spice that... I mean, you know, there, there have been times when we found women unconscious and had to go straight into hospital where they had a bad drug, and it's just so dangerous. But anyway, so that I'd love to get rid of drugs in prisons. What I do before we sort of uh, close out, Amanda, it's been lovely speaking to you, but I do have three philosophical questions, I call them, that I ask all of my guests, and they're quite on-the-spot questions, so you might not have an answer there and then. But the first one of the three is, do you have a motto or... Is there a phrase that you live by? A motto would be the quote from Rumi, out beyond ideas of rightfulness and wrongfulness, there's a field, I'll meet you there. I think I, I love that idea that, you know, we, we need to understand each other. But I don't have a, I mean, one of another lovely old quote I used to love was, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. And I just think sometimes the mind is so powerful. Mm. That actually reminds me about a section that a recurring theme in your new book. I believe you called it the Devil's Playground. Oh yeah. Oh god, yes. That's absolutely. And the time, you know, I, I, I mean, I think we all have times when we self doubt and and worry, and and I know I do when I'm tired and I'm got too much time to think about things. I definitely overthink things. And what's the other thing where people say there are. Imposter syndrome, that's it, imposter syndrome. Yes. Think they never think they're good enough, and, and I, that's definitely me. Yeah, I think I can empathise with that as well. Hmm. I think it is crucial. I really related to that section specifically saying that I need to keep busy because if I'm not busy, yeah, that, that's when I start overthinking, that's when anxiety can creep in. A desperate, awful, and particularly now when my dear old husband died and, you know, I've got, oh, it's awful. Yeah, I have to keep really busy now. Is there anything that you know now you wish you'd known at the start of your career? Mm, not really. I think it's just been an evolving, learning, wonderful journey, actually. I look back on it with huge fondness and I, you know, I'm at the end of it now because I've qualified 42 years ago. Can't believe it. So <laughs> it's strange to think I worked so hard to achieve it and now it's nearly over, but I've had a wonderful time. Would you change anything? I'd have my husband back. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. yeah that, that was a really sad aspect to the book and i'm sorry to hear about your loss it, it sounds like you had a wonderful life together we did but the, you know the fact that you've come all these years and you've done 42 years now and you've closed it off you've written three books about it you've achieved a lot you should be proud oh well that's very sweet of you but yeah thank you that's okay but yeah so the latest book this episode as we speak a couple of weeks before it's released but as of release today is march 17th and it's the prison doctor final sentence stories from inside a foreign national prison it's a wonderful book i'm going to put a link in the description to this episode is there anything you'd like to say before we close out amanda it's been lovely speaking to you well i just it's been so kind of you to speak to me, Stuart, and very sweet of you to, to say you enjoyed the book. Very <laughs> sweet. Thank you. Not a problem, but yeah. I think you'll enjoy it as well, audience. You should give it a, definitely give it a read. I read it on my Kindle, and I read it in a couple of nights, which was unusual for me, a notoriously slow reader. But until next time, as we say on British Murders, cheerio! Cheerio!